that Jesus celebrates with his disciples. So this would be Thursday evening. So you have 13, chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, 16, 17, 18, all the way up through chapter 19 that's talking about um, these events that are preceding the crucifixion. So they go from Thursday night into Friday morning. And of course, in the, in the Jewish world, what's Saturday? Sabbath. Saturday's the Sabbath. So you have something like seven chapters there that are covering, what, a 12, uh, maybe 16-hour time period? So seven chapters to just to, to cover that amount of time when the first 12 chapters covered essentially three years worth of Jesus' ministry. So just if you look at the structure of the book, do you think John has an emphasis here? You know, he's spending time on this particular week and the life of Christ. So he's focused uh, heavily on that. So it's interesting to think about how much space, how much time writing John spends on particular events that he's written about. And uh, I'm sure I'll mention it, but let me just go ahead and mention it now since we got a, a few minutes. Um, <clears throat> Friday, before the Lord's crucifixion, is the preparation day. It's the preparation day. It is preparing for the Passover day. That's when the Passover, because the Passover day is on Saturday as well. Now, when you look at the Jewish calendar, Passover is on a particular date in the calendar and not a particular day of the week. Does that make sense? So Passover is on a, a, a day, on a particular uh, day in the calendar and not over, it, it's not focused on a day of the week. So Passover can fall on any uh, it can fall on, on a number of different days of the week, okay? But in this year that we're talking about, where Jesus is crucified, it falls on the Sabbath day. And so that makes it a high holy day. It's not just a normal Sabbath. It's a very special uh, Sabbath. So that, that heightens um, the emphasis and the importance of this day. And, of course, in the, in the Jewish um, process of things, you know, the, the Passover is celebrating uh, the lamb that would be sacrificed, that they would take the blood and they would put it on the lintel and on the doorpost uh, to have their sins covered so that the, the uh, death angel would pass over. It's a memorial of their time coming out of Egypt. And so that's important. Uh, John, John doesn't specifically make allusion to that, but he doesn't need to because it is ingrained in the Jews about what's happening at this time. So it is about, yeah, it is time to start. And so 
We want to go ahead and begin. So um, we're going to finish up. I gave you notes and I sent notes out earlier and those notes should start with point J. And uh, that's because I did a little bit of updating and I just wanted to make sure we were going to be all on the same page. But um, we still have to cover point I, I believe, where we're talking about the Jews apprehending. Okay, so that's just to help us orientate ourselves to the notes here as, uh, as we begin. So let's pause for a word of prayer and then we'll start. Father, we give you thanks for your goodness to us and your grace that is so abundant in our lives. Lord, pray that you would be with our study this evening. We know as we look at your word, it is profitable to us. And, and Father, so we ask for help in taking your word, giving us understanding in it, and applying it to our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, in your Bible, you should be in chapter 18 of the Gospel of John. Chapter 18 of the Gospel of John. Uh, Jesus has finished praying for himself. He has finished praying for the 11. And he has finished praying for those who will believe uh, in the future. And uh, we also saw that at the beginning of chapter 18, uh, that Ju Judas is betraying. Of course, this is Judas Iscariot, and he is now um, betraying, going through the act of betrayal. And we saw the confrontation there when uh, the, uh, the, palace, or the uh, temple police come up to the Mount of Olives and... Jesus doesn't wait for them to say anything. Uh, he takes the initiative and he says, who are you seeking? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. I am. And when he says that, sort of like they take a step back and fall down when he says that. And then, he, then Jesus repeats the question, who are you seeking? And Again, they say Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, again, he says, I am. And then he goes on to say, um, if you're just after me, let these people go who are with me. A and so uh, this is when, um, isn't that funny? My computer wants to update something right in the middle of this. <laughs> um, and uh, this is when Peter chops off the ear of Malchus. Okay? And uh, Malchus has a relative that we're going to see here in a little bit. So now we're in to chapter 18, verse 12. We're at verse 12. And so this is the Jews apprehending, apprehending Jesus. And so in verses 12 through 14 of chapter 18, we see that Jesus is arrested. It's, verse 12 says, Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man 
should die for the people. Of course, you might remember that, they, that the Sanhedrin was conferring, and uh, Caiaphas, in a, he was prophesying, but not of his own accord. And uh, he, was, he was trying to give expedient political advice. Hey, we need to kill this one guy and save us the whole nation a lot of trouble. But he didn't realize that uh, he was prophesying about the one death to uh, pay the penalty for sin. So uh, with Jesus' arrest here, we have the, the Jewish temple police coming in to do this. And the first person they uh, take Jesus to is Annas. Now, Annas was uh, really the person with power in Jerusalem. He had a number of sons, and as we see here, son-in-laws who become high priests. So Annas had been the high priest before. And uh, he, he had the political power. He was getting his sons appointed and his son-in-laws appointed uh, to be the high priest. And so he has a lot of power. He's got a lot of power in Jerusalem. And uh, at one time, I, I think when, in our study of the book of Acts, I don't know if I, I handed it out, but I made a list of the high priests um, of Israel at this time. And it was amazing how many of them were related to Annas. It's incredible. It must be six or seven, seven of them. Um, also... Jesus is taken to Annas first because that provides a little bit of insulation, a little bit of protection um, between what was essentially an illegal arrest and going to be an illegal trial. It provides a little protection for the high priest himself. So the high priest himself can't be charged with you know, participating in this illegal activity. And so when Jesus is arrested we see that uh, um, immediately following this in verses 15 through 18 that Peter is going to deny Jesus the first time. So this will be the first of Peter's denial, verse 15. Uh, and Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Now verse 17. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not, al you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? Question mark. He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers who had made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. So the other disciple here is um, most likely John, the writer of this gospel. So he, he was probably the youngest of the uh, disciples, and... Um, he never refers to himself in the, by his name. He always refers to himself in some other way, the disciple that Jesus loved, or this, the other disciple, another disciple. And this is, this is how John refers to himself. And notice there's a connection between this other disciple, John, and the high priest. The high priest knew John. And uh, that suggests to us that there is some type of 
political connection that John's family has with the high priest. Um, it does, we're not told exactly what it is, but nobody knew who Peter was, right? They, the high priest didn't know Peter, wouldn't give him access, but John got access because apparently people knew John was connected to the high priest. And so he goes on in, John's following Jesus. Peter's kind of lagging a little bit. John goes on into the, uh, the high priest compound. Peter has to hang back because nobody knows him. Then John goes out to get him, says to the girl who's at the door, hey, let this guy in. And so uh, Peter's coming in, and she says, hey, are you one of his disciples? Aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? And of course, Peter, in his first denial, says, I'm not. So he says, I'm not. Just no. He says no. And then he goes on in and uh, starts to warm himself by the fire. And so as we come to verses 19 through 24, we see that Jesus is tried by the Jews. Jesus tried by the Jews. Verse 19. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always met, and in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So you see here, Annas is still referred to as the high priest. Uh, even though he's not the official high priest, he's still referred to as the high priest. He's still referred to as this one uh, who has the power. Um, so notice the question that Annas asked Jesus. He asked this question, who's with you and, and what do you believe? What are you teaching? Who, who's with you and what are you teaching? And so Jesus' response is that I have taught everything openly. There's no secret to what I taught. Just ask people who heard me. That's all you have to do. If you want to know what I teach, you should ask them. And so then it goes on, and one of these guys who's standing by hits, basically slaps Jesus across the face with the palm of his hand, which, um, as we're studying the book of Acts, we've already covered this, but in chapter 23, the same thing happens to the apostle Paul. When the high priest questions him, he is, he's struck for his response to the high priest. But Jesus says, look, there's no reason to hit me. If I've said something wrong, you can, you can hit me, but I haven't said anything wrong. There's no, no point in hitting me. And so after this, uh, I, it seems like Annas determines we're not, there's no point in continuing continuing the questioning let's just send him to the the high priest the official high priest at that time uh, Caiaphas so Jesus is sent on to Caiaphas then in, in verses 25 through 27 we see Peter's second and third denial so Peter's going to deny Jesus again 
Uh, two more times. Verse 25. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Remember, when, last time we left Simon Peter, he's by the fire. They made a fire. He's by the fire warming himself. Verse 25 picks right up there. Uh, he's, he's there warming himself. Therefore they said to him, the ones who were standing around the, the fire, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? So aren't you one of, the, one of his disciples too? Aren't you also a disciple of Jesus? By the way, that seems to indicate to us, since they use the word also, that they understood John was a disciple, was a follower of Jesus. So they're asking Peter, are you a disciple too? Are you a disciple also? And he denied it and said, I am not. Verse 26. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off. So this is a relative of Malchus. All right. Undoubtedly, Malchus is getting some type of medical, you know, saying, is my ear still okay? Even though, even though uh, Jesus took care of that, he's probably still wondering, is it still there? Is it still there? I mean, you can imagine if you had an appendage chopped off and Jesus healed you. Every now and then, you would touch, again, you would touch it just to make sure it's still there, right? So Malchus, and I'm, and I'm sure Malchus was telling everybody about what happened, you know. Um, and so the, his relative comes up to Peter and says, Did I not see you in the garden with him? So this relative had been with the, the temple police. Verse 27, Peter then denied again, and immediately the rooster crowed. Remember, when Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him, he said, you're going to do this three times before the rooster crows in the morning. So um, Peter is asked by those who are around the fire if he is a disciple of Jesus. Um, now, what I think is really interesting here with this questioning the way the question is stated is there's really no stigma attached to being a disciple of Jesus at this point. People knew who the disciples were. People had seen who was following Jesus as he was going around teaching. So there wasn't any stigma attached to that. But Peter, for a second time, denies Jesus. And then a third time denies Jesus. When asked if he is a disciple. Um, as we have been studying the gospel of John. I have for the most part avoided comparing John's gospel with the other gospels. It's, it's just not much information that's similar. 92% uh, of what is recorded in the gospel of John is only found in the gospel of John. 92%. So there's only about 8% that's similar to the other gospels. But uh, in the case of Peter's denial, um, it's recorded in other, uh, in, in at least Matthew and Mark's account. And when we, we would uh, look at those two accounts, what we would see is that there is a, a clear progression of Peter's denials. They get stronger and stronger and stronger. And so especially in Matthew's account, when he's asked... Um, by the girl at the door, his response is, I don't know what you're talking about. That's what he says. I don't know. 
I, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I have no context for even answering that question, basically. It's not, why would you ask me such a question? I don't know what you're talking about. His second answer um, to the men around uh, the fire is, I don't know who this man is. When they ask him about Jesus, I don't know who, I don't know who that is. And then in Matthew's account, for the third denial, when he is asked, are you a disciple of Jesus? It says he is cursing and swearing. I don't know who this man is. So it, it, it progresses in his denial, the, the uh, strength of his denial. And what's so striking about this is that it has only been hours, hours, since Peter told Jesus, I can go wherever you go. I can do whatever you do. In fact, it's probably only been about 90 minutes since Peter drew his sword and tried to kill uh, the man, Malchus's cousin, who questions him uh, last. It's only been about 90 minutes since he chopped off Malchus's ear. So 90 minutes since he's willing to fight for Jesus to now at this point where he denies any connection to Jesus whatsoever. And so we see that the Jews have apprehended, they have Jesus now. He's been questioned by uh, um, Annas, the former high priest, and they're sending him to Caiaphas, the present high priest. Now in the notes that I provided for this evening, letter J there, uh, we see that Jesus is tried by Pilate. They're going to take Jesus to Pilate. So this is chapter 18, uh, verse 28 through the first part of verse 38. And uh, in this passage, you're going to notice that Pilate's going to ask Jesus four questions. There's four basic questions that uh, Pilate is going to put to Jesus. But first, I want us to notice in verse 28... Um, this this um, trial that Jesus has before Pilate, is, and don't think of a, a trial like a court case in the United States or the Western world. It's, you know, a Jew's taken before Pilate. Pilate is the ultimate authority in Judea at that time. So to come before him in any sense is you're facing a trial. Um, so first, in verse 28, notice is at the praetorium at the praetorium. It says, then they led Jesus from Caiaphas, so we don't hear much about that, but they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. So that tells us it's still very early in the day on Friday. This is Friday, very early in the morning. Um, so this is the day of preparation. Um, but they themselves did not go into the praetorium. That's talking about the Jews themselves did not go into to the praetorium lest they should be defiled that they might eat the Passover. So remember, Jews believed that if they went into the house of a Gentile, it defiled them. And they didn't have enough time to go into Pilate's residence and then cleanse them, have themselves cleansed, ceremonially cleanse, and still eat the Passover. So um, they're not going to go in. So they're just sending Jesus in alone. Now it talks about the praetorium here, and there's two possible locations uh, to the praetorium. 
Um, the first location, it could be the, the Tower of Phazael, which is on the western wall of the city, not the western wall of the Temple Mount, which you see the pictures of with the Jews praying at, that big tall uh, wall. That's the western wall of the Temple Mount. The Tower of Phazael is on the th western wall of the city. Okay? So some people believe that's where it was. Uh, others believe, and I would, I would kind of go with this one, that it's the Antonia Fortress, which is located in the northwest corner just outside of the Temple Mount. So if you're looking down at the Temple Mount from a satellite, you go to the northwest corner, right there, just outside that northwest corner would be the Antonia Fortress. And of course, this is where Paul is taken when he is tried uh, in Jerusalem. Now, wherever the location might be, the reality is the praetorium is wherever Pilate is. Wherever Pilate decides to set up his residence, wherever he decides to hold his court, that is the praetorium. It's sort of like the president in Air Force One. Air Force One is not the name of a plane. It's the designation for a plane, the plane, whatever kind of plane, the president of the United States happens to be in. Whether it's what you see on TV, it's usually that 747 that's all been, you know, specially kitted out, or it could be in a little Cessna uh, 152. You know, if the president's on there, the plane is designated Air Force One. Okay, if it's a helicopter, it's designated Marine One. But just that's the, that's what is happening here. Wherever Pilate is, is where the Praetorium is at. Um, and notice in verse 29, Pilate's first question to Jesus, or first questions the Jews. Before he questions Jesus, he goes out to the Jews. It says, Pilate then went out to them, that's the Jews, and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? So his first question to the Jews is, what's the charge? Why are you bringing him to me? Verse 30, we see the answer that the Jews give to Pilate. They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So basically they're saying, if he weren't some type of wicked, wicked criminal, there's no, we wouldn't have brought him to you. And what they're saying there by this vague answer, that's a vague answer. There's no detail there. They're saying to Pilate, trust us. He's a bad guy. Trust us. Um, if he weren't a this, if the, he wasn't a serious criminal, we wouldn't have brought him to you. We wouldn't be coming to you. And so, Pilate then tells them that they should deal with Jesus. It's, Jesus is their problem. Look at verse thirty-one. Then Pilate said to them, "You take him and judge him according to your law." So already Pilate is skeptical about whether Jesus has broken any Roman law, especially since they can't give him a charge. So he understands that the issue is not with the Roman law, it's with Jewish, the Jewish people. So he already understands what's happening uh, there. This is not an issue for the Roman court system. This is an issue for the Jewish court system. But then we see in the second part of verse 31 into verse 32 that the Jews just come out with it. It says, therefore, the Jews said to him, 
it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Okay, so there it is. It's not that they want a trial. They want an execution, right? They want an execution. Verse 32. That the, saying of, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, saying by what death he would die. So this is the real reason they've come to Pilate. They don't need Pilate's judgment, but they do need his authority to execute Jesus. They can't execute Jesus. Capital punishment was reserved uh, for the Roman Empire itself, even though they gave the Jews a lot of leeway in their own court system. Capital punishment is something that the Romans, they didn't just want everybody going around executing capital punishment. They reserved that uh, for themselves. And so now Pilate goes into Jesus, and he's going to start asking him questions. Verse 33. Here's the first question. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? So in Pilate's discussion with the Jews, which we don't have recorded, um, he must have figured out this is the issue. This is the issue that Jesus is claiming to be the king of the, the Jews. So that's his question to him. Straightforward, blunt question. Are you the king of the Jews? Now, this question is not as um, dreadful or terrifying as it might at first seem. Um, because why, I mean, what care would Pilate have if Jesus is going around saying he's the king of the Jews? I mean, anybody could be claiming to be king of the Jews. And in fact, for all intents and purposes, the chief priest was acting like a king. They would act like a king. And so it didn't matter who claimed to be the king of the Jews. Even if there was a king of the Jews, they were still in subjection to Caesar. They would still be in subject. So this isn't, this isn't like a gotcha question that Pilate is asking Jesus. But nevertheless, he asked him point blank, are you the king of the Jews? And, and so in verse 34, Jesus answers Pilate. And he wants to know if this is Pilate's own question. Pilate, did you come up with this question? Verse 34, Jesus answered him. Are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? So where'd you get this question? Why do you have this particular question from a Pilate? Are you really wanting to know the truth? Or are you just being used? You really want to know the truth, Pilate? Or are you just uh, doing some political maneuvering here? Are you really trying to decide if this is an appropriate charge against me? And so after Jesus answers Pilate's first question, Pilate comes back with another question, verse 35. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? So he says, he says am I a Jew? In other words, am I supposed to understand all this stuff about you Jews? And, and I think there's a tone of it there, you weirdo Jews. I think that's the tone. You all are a peculiar people. Am I supposed to? I'm not a Jew. I don't I'm, have all this stuff in my mind. But what I do know is your own people are bringing you to me and they want to kill you. What have you done? What is the serious crime that you have committed? Um, and so what we see here is that uh, Pilate 
And his second question is not lost on the fact that his own relationship to the Jewish leadership is tumultuous. He needs to be a politician. You know, he's trying to be a politician because his chief goal, Pilate's chief goal is not justice. Okay? That is not Pilate's goal. Pilate's goal is peace. Keep the peace. He doesn't want people rioting in the streets. That's his goal. The worst, the worst offense that one could do in the Roman Empire is to break the peace. That's really the worst offense. And uh, rulers in the Roman Empire were judged by, did they keep the peace in their district, in their province? And so now Jesus is going to answer again, and, and really he, he's going to answer both question, give an answer to both questions 1 and 2 in verse 36. It says, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should be delivered, so I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. So Jesus is essentially saying, I am, I am a king. Because I have a kingdom. My kingdom. I am a king. And how does Jesus describe the nature of his kingdom? He says, it's not of this world. That's to say it's not based on the political system of the world at that time. The evidence that that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world is that his servants are not fighting. His servants are not fighting to save him. And so the fact that the Jews delivered Jesus to Pilate means his servants aren't fighting his kingdoms, not of this world. And so what we see here is that in Jesus' answer, he is affirming the fact that he is a king, but that his uh, rulership, his kingship, and his kingdom are not a threat to the Roman Empire. He's not there to usurp Roman authority. And so in verse 37, at the beginning of verse 37, Pilate comes back with his third question. Okay, he's got all these questions. And uh, so it says, Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? In other words, Jesus, you know, Jesus is doing what Jesus does. He answers the question, but he doesn't answer it in a simple, straightforward answer. He answered it in the way that he wants to answer it, to emphasize the point that he wants to emphasize, not necessarily just to give an answer to the person who's asking the question. So Pilate asks him the question, are you a king then? He wants a direct answer. I don't want, I don't want this talking around the answer. I want a direct answer. And so in the second part of verse 37, Jesus gives the direct answer. It says, Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. So he's affirming again that he is a king. You say rightly, I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Here's my voice. So he says, I am a king. This is my birthright. This is why I am here. And this is the truth. This is true. And if you accept the truth, you will accept what I say. 
That's what Jesus is saying. If you accept the truth, you will accept what I say. If you're concerned about the truth, you will accept my answer. And so then we have Pilate's fourth question. So this is a pretty rapid-fire question-and-answer session here. So Pilate comes out with his fourth question, and he says, Pilate said to him, beginning in verse 38, what is truth? What is truth? And so Pilate, is, he's not asking a, a, like a real question about what's truth. He's not asking a philosophical question about truth. Uh, Pilate is questioning the real relevance of truth in this case. Does the truth actually matter in the case of Jesus? The idea is that something may, in fact, be true, but it doesn't mean anything if the people in power don't accept the truth. And I think Pilate's point here is it doesn't matter what the facts are. What matters is what I think. Okay. What matters is what I think, because I have the power. I have the power. And, and he even alludes to this a little bit later. And by saying that, he's also indicating to Jesus, you don't have any power. You might be a king. And I'm not going to argue with that point, but you don't have any power. I'm the one with the power here. And so this, this ends this part of Pilate's interaction with Jesus. He has asked him uh, four questions here as Jesus stands before Pilate, and Pilate's trying to figure out what's going on here. And at the end of the day, Pilate's saying, look, Jesus, the thing that matters is my decision, what, I, what decision I'm going to make. It does, these other things don't matter. It doesn't matter if you're a king. It doesn't matter what the truth is. What matters is my opinion. And so as we come to the second part of verse 38 through verse 40, we go from Pilate trying Jesus to the Jews rejecting Jesus. Verse 38, part uh, 2 here. It says, And when he had said this, when Pilate had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. And John adds, now Barabbas was a robber. That word robber will also be used of the two criminals that are uh, crucified with Jesus, it's, it's not like he's a thief. He's not a petty criminal. He's, uh, he would be like an armed robber. He's, he, he robs people by violence. You know, he beats them up, and he's a mugger type. Um, uh, he's at least that. It might be even more, uh, more than that. And so at the beginning, or excuse me, at the second part of verse 38, we see Pilate's judgment. Here's Pilate's judgment. I find no fault in him at all. There's nothing that Jesus has done that suggests he should be executed. He has not broken Roman law in the least. And so after Pilate gives his judgment, he also, he also makes them an offer. 
Pilate is offering the Jews a way to get out of this embarrassing situation that they have created by bringing Jesus to him when he hasn't committed any crime. You know, so he's saying, I'm giving you a way out here. Um, it's clear in, in their response to the, the Jews' response to um, this offer clearly shows that uh, they want to have Jesus killed. They want to have him executed even though the legal system of the land doesn't support it. And so Pilate says, here's the offer. There's a custom that you have where I release someone from prison uh, to you, and I'm going to give you the opportunity to make the choice. And when he gives the opportunity to make the choice, he presents to them polar opposites. He presents to them Barabbas, who is a known and convicted criminal, or Jesus, who is known for his good works. Who do you want, Jews? And of course, they say Barabbas is the man that we want. And so when the Jews choose Barabbas in verse 40, this is their final rejection of Jesus Christ. And so, the, so uh, Jesus has been tried before Pilate, and he has been found innocent. He has been rejected by the Jews, even though he is innocent. And now, in verse, uh, chapter 19, verses 1 through 16, he is going to be tortured by the Romans. So we have the Romans torturing Jesus at the beginning of chapter 19. And notice how this torture begins. Jesus is beaten and abused in verses 1 through 5. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Verse 4. Pilate then went out again and said to them, to the Jews, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So notice in this beating and abuse of Jesus that the first thing they do is scourge him. Now, the word that John uses here for scourging is emastigomen. So that'll be on the quiz next month. Emastigomen. And the only thing you need to know is it's different than the word that Matthew and Mark use for Jesus being scourged, which is fragilosos. What did I say? Emastigomen. Fragilosa sounds totally different, doesn't it? Totally different words. The word that John uses here is the general term for being beaten with a whip. That's the general term. The word that Matthew and Mark use is a specific term for a much more brutal act. Uh, and this word that Matthew and Mark use, not John, but Matthew and Mark, is only connected 
with crucifixion. This is the word that's connected with the beating that goes along with crucifixion. And the severity of this um, would have been to make this person a public spectacle after uh, receiving the beating, uh, the whipping, the flogging before execution, they would not be much more than just a mass of muscle and bone. Much of their skin would have been ripped away from them. It would have been a pretty terrifying sight. And uh, this was also done to um, ensure the death of the person uh, being crucified. Some people, many people, never even got crucified because they would, they would die in the midst of uh, that type of scourging. But that's not the scourging that Jesus receives here. He still re receives a beating, but he doesn't receive the scourging that's, uh, at least here at this point, that's recorded in Matthew and Mark. So how can we uh, account for this different description that John gives and Matthew and Mark give well, when we see the differences, that, uh, a seeming difference that we see here, first, I think we assume that there's more to the story than what we have recorded in these accounts. There's, there's more happening. These men did not record everything. It wasn't, they were not taking line by line everything that happened. They're recording things for the narrative that they are presenting. So we don't start by saying, oh, there must be a contradiction here, Okay we can assume there's more happening than what we're being told, but there's no contradiction. Secondly, it is possible that Jesus did get flogged two times. While Matthew and Mark's account intends to include the information that Jesus was flogged in connection to his crucifixion, as was the normal practice, in John's account, Jesus' flogging is followed uh, then in, in a a pretty good break of time, then being led away to be crucified. And so the phrase, led away to be crucified in the Gospel of John, could include the second more severe flogging. So I'll say a little bit more about what I think happened here in just a couple minutes. So he scourged. He receives a brutal beating. Second thing, or letter on my notes is little b, Verse 2, um, there's a crown of thorns that are made and put into his head. And, and there's a, it's amazing. People debate what type of plant these thorns came from. Um, but it's probably a date palm uh, because uh, when you take these branches of the date palm and you form them into what would look like something that would go on somebody's head, the, the thorns are big enough that it actually does kind of look like a crown. And when you sit that on somebody's head, just sitting it on somebody's head is going to start to dig into that person's head and uh, be painful. And, of course, I'm sure they didn't just set it on his head. They, they probably gave it a little push, and it would have certainly uh, drawn blood and caused acute pain. So they scourge him. They put this crown of thorns on Jesus. And then in verse 3, they mock Jesus. They dress him up like a king with a purple robe. And then they tease him. They go around, hail king. And then they hit him. And, and so they're mocking him. And then finally, as a part of this uh, abuse and torture of Jesus, they present him to the Jews. So in verse 4, it tells us that Pilate presents Jesus wearing this purple robe 
and he announced his, his innocence again. So he's already announced his innocence once to the Jews. I don't find any fault with him. And they won't back down. And so he has Jesus scourged. They put this crown of thorns on. He's mocked. He, you know, he's made fun of for being the king of the Jews. And then Pilate brings him out to the Jews. Now, we can't help but ask a question. If, if Pilate knew uh, that there was no fault in Jesus, why did he allow him to be treated this way? Why did he allow this to happen? And uh, it would seem that Paul, or Pilate is attempting to do two things. Number one, since he has already judged that Jesus is innocent of any capital offense, it seems that he's trying to appease the Jews by ministering a lesser punishment. If he punishes Jesus like this, maybe they will back down and uh, they, they will stop calling for his execution. So that's one thing that might be going on in Pilate's mind. Secondly, it might be that Pilate's trying to teach Jesus a lesson. It might be that even though Jesus is not guilty of what he's accused of, Pilate might be telling Jesus through this, you should have known better than to instigate and push the buttons of the Jewish leaders. You should have known better than doing that. Shame on you. This is this interrupted my plans for the day. I wanted to go golf, but now I have to deal with this. So this is, you deserve this. This is, this is what you get for doing this. So in, e in either case, either way, you know, Pilate is having Jesus tortured um, before he's presented to the Jews a second time. Remembering, Pilate believes Jesus is totally innocent of the charges that's been leveled at him. And, and so we have this torturing of the Jew. Jesus is beaten and abused. And secondly, in verses 6 through 16, Jesus is then sentenced by Pilate. So in verses 6 through 7, it says this. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him. And crucify him. I find no fault in him. Now, how many times has he said that phrase, I find no fault in him? Three times. This is the third time he said that. Find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law. And according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. So, um, the Jews need Pilate. They're, they're pushing Pilate to make a pronouncement against Jesus. So, so far, Pilate's only said he's innocent. That's, that's his judgment. Well, that's not going to cut it. He, he can't leave it at that. The Jews are pushing him to um, register condemnation of Jesus. And so we see in verses 8 through 11 that Pilate again goes back to Jesus and questions him some more. Verse 8. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid. He knew these Jews were not going to back down. They were going to get excited and cause trouble. Verse 9. And went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? 
Do you not know I have power to crucify you and power to release you? And notice Jesus' response. You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So Pilate asks his first question, where are you from? No answer. He asks his second question, why aren't you speaking to me? No answer. He asks his third question now, do you not know I'm the one with all the power here? Jesus responds to the third question. Jesus points out that the power of Pilate is actually a delegated power and does not reside with Pilate himself. And while it seems clear that Jesus is saying that Pilate could not do anything against him unless God the Father allowed it, Pilate probably would have been thinking that Jesus was speaking of the fact that his power, Pilate's power, comes from Caesar. That's where he gets his authority. But that's not what Jesus meant. And Jesus ends the conversation, conversation by saying that what the Jews are doing is, is worthy of greater condemnation than what Pilate is doing. So when he says, therefore, the one who delivered me to you, I was talking about the Jewish people, has the greater sin. And so um, Pilate has questioned Jesus again in verses 8 through 11. And then in verse 12, we see the influence of the Jews over Pilate. Verse 12 says, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. So that the, this whole episode's not over. There's a lot of stuff we just don't know about. It's not recorded here. But Pilate kept on trying to get the Jews to back down and release uh, Jesus. But the Jews cried out saying, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. So even though Pilate is convinced of Jesus' innocence, he was so afraid of the political fallout and the political spin that could be put on this that he gives in to the Jews' request. And so in verses 13 through 16, Pilate pronounces judgment. Verse 13. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, talking about you're no friend of Caesar, he brought Jesus out and sat him down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement. And this is where the, the procurator would pr pronounce judgment. But in Hebrew, Gabbatha, verse 14. But now it was the preparation day of the Passover. So it's Friday of the Passover, Passover Saturday, Sabbath, next day. And about the sixth hour, so that's about noon about noon, that uh, this is going to happen. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him. Same thing that in the book of Acts, the Jews cry out against Paul. Away with him, away with him. In other words, kill him. Crucify him. Paul, Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. And then he delivered him to them to be crucified. So 
Uh, this goes back to the scourging question. And I believe in, the, in verse 16 where it says, and then he delivered him to them to be crucified. He's talking about to the Roman soldiers. And now they are going to perform the crucifixion. And what is part of the crucifixion is this scourging that Matthew and Mark mention, the uh, phagellosis. Um, that where they, they it's an extreme uh, scourging. So at this point, we've covered everything that has happened the night before, Thursday night, and Friday morning leading up to Christ's crucifixion. And uh, while John covers this with seven chapters, that's how long he spends on covering the events of this time, so about a little over 12 hours, uh, maybe 18 hours, he's now going to move rapidly through the uh, next events surrounding the crucifixion in order to get to the empty tomb, get to the resurrection. And so he's, um, John has painstakingly described what has happened in the last 18 hours. Lots of description, but now he's going to speed up. He's going to speed up when he talks about the crucifixion in particular and move as quickly as he can to the resurrection. So we're on point four here in your notes, Roman numeral four, the crucifixion. Chapter 19, verse 16 through 37. So the second part of verse 16 says, Then they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to the place called the place of the skull, of a skull, which is called in Hebrew uh, Golgotha, where they crucified him. And two others with him, one on either side, Jesus in the center. So that's the extent of Paul or uh, John's description of Jesus' crucifixion. And they crucified him. That's what, it, that's what he says. So not, not much is spent on the crucifixion. Um, so Jesus has been delivered to the soldiers for crucifixion and is led away. He bears his own cross. And this was the normal practice for those being crucified. Uh, most likely, he would not be carrying the entire cross, but only the uh, cross member, which had a specific name, the uh, patabulum, uh, P-A-T-I-B-U-L-U-M, patabulum. Um, so he's probably just carrying that cross member. Now, John omits any mention of the account of Simon the Cyrene who was compelled to carry Jesus' cross. Uh, this is not a mistake. This is not an error. It's just not important to what John's trying to express here. Okay? Um, I think the Gospel of Luke is the one that records that event with Simon. So Jesus is bearing his own cross, and notice the place of the crucifixion. Notice the name that it's given here. Uh, it says uh, the a place of a skull. It actually doesn't say skull. That's that's a uh, well. That I mean, that's the translation. But the Greek term here is uh, kranion, 
we get our word cranium from it. Cranium. Uh, so it means skull. The Hebrew word uh, Golgotha uh, is used for a skull, but the, the word there, Golgotha, is really about a shape. And it's, it refers to stuff that's round or domed shape. Because this place where the crucifixion took, happened uh, was, had like a dome shape to it, kind of jutted up from uh, the landscape. In Latin, the word skull comes from the translation calvaria. So we get our term calvary from the Latin. So um, in Christian tradition, any reference to Calvary is due to the Latin translation of the Bible, uh, not to uh, the Greek text or uh, to the Hebrew text. It's just it's Latin. So that's the name and the location. The exact location of the crucifixion is, is debated by some. But if, if you've ever been to uh, Jerusalem, if you've been to the garden tomb, there's a little uh, seating place up in the garden tomb that you can go up to. Uh, it's elevated. Uh, it's away from the tomb itself. It's, it's elevated. It's like in the, on the edge of the garden tomb area. And from that uh, overlooked area, you can look out and you see a rock outcropping. And when you look at that rock outcropping, it doesn't take much imagination to actually see uh, See what might look like a skull. And uh, this would make sense because it's on just outside of the city, the old city proper, and would have been along the road that led people into the city. So everybody would have seen, stuck up on this out, uh, rocky outcropping, these men who had been crucified. Uh, interestingly enough, when we were there several years ago, there's a bus stop right there. So people coming and going from this bus stop, they can look up and they can see that. And so Jesus bears his own cross. We see the place of the crucifixion. And uh, then it mentions here in verse 18 the people of being crucified. It says there were two criminals who were being executed at the same time. Uh, John does not include the conversation that Jesus had with these two men. Uh, but it is recorded in Luke chapter 23. And uh, interestingly enough, um, it is Mark's gospel when it records the crucifixion of Jesus, when he is said to be crucified with criminals, that he says it's a fulfillment of the prophecy and he was numbered with the transgressors, which comes from Isaiah 53, 12. And so John doesn't include that, but uh, Mark includes that in his gospel. Let me, let me do the uh, next point, point B, designated king of the Jews, verses 19 through 22. Uh, verse 19, now Pilate wrote a title um, and put it on the cross, a placard, and put it on the cross. Uh, the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Then many, of the Jews, then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, the king of the Jews, but 
He said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So there's this placard that, um, that is placed over top of Jesus. This was a common practice that the placard with the crime that was committed would be placed either on the criminal or over the criminal's head. In this case, it was placed on the cross, not on uh, Jesus. And uh, the two men who were crucified with Jesus uh, are described in the same way. It's the same word that is used to describe Barabbas. And so uh, that would be put on their placard. They would have had their own placard and would have probably say, said, Lestes, which is robber or, you know, thief, um, um, something like that. Um, so they would have had their placard, and Jesus has his placard. But on Jesus' placard, uh, it doesn't give his crime. It doesn't give his crime. The, the crime, um, if Jesus was guilty of a crime, the crime would be sedition. Um, that would be the crime that he would be guilty of. But that's not what Pilate has written. Pilate has written, uh, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, and he has it written in three languages. He has it written uh, in uh, Hebrew, Greek, in Latin, Hebrew would have been the language of the Jews. Greek would have been the common language of all people, no matter where they came from. If you were part of the Roman Empire, you could probably make out a little bit of Greek. And it was written in Latin, which would have been the Roman language, the imperial language. So three languages that expresses that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And when the chief priests request that uh, Pilate changed this in verses 21 through 22. Um, Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. And um, I think it's particularly noteworthy here that uh, since Pilate doesn't actually write the crime that Jesus was accused of, which he isn't really being judged for anyway, he's innocent. Pilate's already determined that he's innocent. Um, it seems that Pilate, in a way, is having the last word against the Jews, getting back at them, poking them in the eye, so to speak, um, and, and getting back at them for putting him in this position of being manipulated into crucifying Jesus. Uh, but, of course, we know that Pilate is actually being used to declare the fact of who Jesus really is, and the fact that the nation of Israel is rejecting and killing their Messiah. And this becomes important as we get into the book of Acts chapter 2 when Peter preaches a sermon to the Jews on the day of Pentecost. So 50, 50 days from this day that we're talking about in our Bible, 50 days later, he preaches this sermon and the Jews, it's like the light bulb comes on in their head and they realize, we have killed our Messiah. What can we do? What can we do? So we'll stop right there. So that's letter B. We're going to get into letter C uh, next week. And I'm thinking maybe three more weeks and we're going to be done. Three more weeks and we'll, we'll be done with the gospel of John. And uh, tonight... Is Samuel and Emily's last night with us. And they're going to California. 
to the left coast. <laughs> to the left coast. So that's, uh, that's all we have, and so the Lord bless you.